You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. This is the October Journal Club. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon and a guest, Laura Rock. Uh, how are you, Ben? Yeah, I am really good and I'm uh, pumped to be here this month, especially uh, getting the privilege of having Laura here as well since she inspired this month's uh, Journal Club. Indeed, it is a privilege. Now, some of our listeners know Laura Rock well, uh, but Laura, how are you? And could you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Hello, Vic and Ben. Uh, I am an intensivist in Boston. I work in the medical intensive care unit at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and I teach at Harvard Medical School. My research and teaching interests involve working on how patients and how physicians and nurses speak with patients and family. And that sort of evolved into thinking about how teams communicate, since I think it's really hard for patients to trust us when we don't trust each other. Since I've been very involved in simulation for the past 10 years, it was a very natural um, evolution to take the kinds of work we were doing in debriefing and simulation and bring that into the clinical world, which is my new area of interest. Which is at this interface between education, simulation and clinical work. So your perspectives will be excellent. What you didn't say uh, is that you're a great friend of Ben and mine and I've enjoyed doing (laughs) some other things with you uh, related to storytelling in education. Uh, And, of course, you do a large amount of work with CMS in debriefing and uh, many people will know you from that. Uh, All right, Ben, we'll... Laura's given us a nice little segue there into the articles and uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about it, how we got there and uh, what our listeners thought about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, this month in Simulcast, we looked at two different papers, one which was essentially a quantitative reflection on a large surgical clinical debriefing program, and the other one had a more qualitative reflection with similar themes and uh, some of the same authors. So the papers were, uh, the first one was Implementation of Surgical Debriefing Programs in Large Health Systems and Exploratory Qualitative Analysis in BMC Health Services Research, published in 2018 by Brindle et al. And the second was The Use of a Surgical Debriefing Checklist to Achieve Higher Value Healthcare, uh, written by Rose and Rose and published in the American Journal of Medical Quality. In the first paper, uh, The Use of a Surgical Debriefing Checklist to Achieve Higher-Value Healthcare, Rose and Rose state that producing high-value healthcare sounds straightforward, but it's often actually proven difficult to achieve. They argue that there's an inherent complexity in modern healthcare due to the existence of a multitude of stakeholders with divergent goals and experiences. And importantly, they acknowledge that there has been no silver bullet intervention for creating high-value healthcare within and across systems of care. They argue that implementations of checklists, such as the WHO surgical checklists, can sometimes create a mirage of improved compliance that doesn't necessarily lead to sustained system improvement or cost savings, which in turn can lead to a loss of team faith in any quality improvement processes. And so in response to this problem, the authors describe a successful surgical debriefing checklist that continues at McLeod Regional Medical Center in South Carolina. And while the the title of the article emphasizes the checklist itself, what's described in the article is actually, in fact, a very sophisticated, transparent, and highly evolved quality improvement ecosystem that's led to significant changes for the hospital and its patients. 
And in essence, the team ensured that debriefs were occurring, but they also ensured that the findings were distributed to staff, that executives were informed about important information and empowered with a sense of urgency so that the staff could actually see change. They described 54,003 debriefings involving uh, over 4,500 significant events. And over the course of the program, the unadjusted 30-day surgical mortality rate at this hospital dropping proportionately by about 33%. Incident awareness and reporting increased from 9% to 15 to 20%. And they also decreased their mean surgical labor hours per case from 19 to 10.8, which was below the national average. And they simultaneously increased their case volume by about 13%. So this led to gains in net clinical revenue of more than 3 million annually for the hospital. In their conclusion, the authors note that at the heart of this success is an overt recognition that high-value healthcare is produced by the combined efforts of a wide array of hospital personnel over the entire cycle of care, and this inclusivity led to a more complete understanding of the root causes of events and greater buy-in from staff whose cooperation was needed to implement solutions. Each constituency was encouraged to speak to the gaps they saw. Nurses focused on safety and quality of care, managers looked at costs, and physicians wanted more time efficiency to get through the day's caseload. In the end, it was found that decreasing or eliminating recurring events created a ripple effect that allowed the hospital to achieve value as measured across multiple dimensions of healthcare delivery. In many ways, the message of this paper is reinforced with the qualitative analysis from the second paper. Uh, It's a thematic analysis of interviews from four surgical leaders in hospitals with debriefing programs, three of which are described as successful and one which was described as having eventually failed. And within the interviews is a lot of very useful tidbits for those in uh, thinking about instituting clinical debriefing programs. They again heavily emphasize the importance of early engagement with executive administration support, synthesizing and visually displaying, displaying action feedback, and some practical tips as well, such as inviting those least hierarchically likely to speak to contribute first in debriefs in order to encourage their participation. The analysis also identifies useful barriers to success, so leadership transitions, the communication challenges that can sometimes arise when staff from different streams start talking to each other, a lack of resources, and also the potential for the conversations to become somewhat perfunctory and meaningless. In the end, the article emphasizes that clinical event debriefing is a really powerful tool for safety and quality improvements in the hospital, but that actually achieving that is complex, challenging and requires constant vigilance. Any comments from you guys? Uh, Thanks, Benton. So this all sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? I mean, quite spectacular. How could we not all be doing it? Uh, Even before we get into the depths of it, Laura, you were the inspiration for this, I know. Uh, Did you want to tell us a little bit of the kind of personal backstory to both finding out about uh, Rose's work and thinking about it in your own context and trying to understand it for us? Sure. I became interested in Michael Rose's project because I had been in a few debriefs after cardiac arrests in my hospital where I learned that there were events that had happened years prior that were never really discussed and they were affecting the way very, very um, experienced senior exceptional clinicians, doctors and nurses were behaving in subsequent events. And 
it just really struck me that we're losing a lot by not taking the time to debrief and and reflect together and just become a more curious environment. And I spoke with the head of patient safety at our hospital, who had told me that she just heard about this program at McLeod Regional Medical Center, and she connected me with Michael Rose. It was actually before his paper was published. And I began this email uh, exchange with him and learned about his program. And that's what sort of led me down this path of of becoming aware of his work. And since then, I've learned that Um, A lot of hospitals have tried to implement um, a debriefing program, a routine debriefing program in the surgical setting um, because of the WHO um, checklist project or uh, surgical safe surgery um, project. And that is actually what happened in his medical center as well. Um, It's pretty rare to implement a routine debriefing program outside of a surgical environment. And maybe we can talk about some of the barriers of that later. But that was how I got connected with him and and how I learned about his project and um, some of the really fascinating steps that they took even before they implemented what they did. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's very useful. And I think one thing I'd be interested in, because I always feel like the specifics are important, when you said things had happened previously at your institution that hadn't been learned from, do you think these were things related to the um, sort of staff distress? Do you think they were process-related things or was it a whole variety? Well, the examples I'm thinking of were were kind of personal. They were like emotional reactions to events, clinical things that happened where clinicians were blaming themselves for an outcome that I, I don't think was appropriate to um, sort of take on individually or um, frustration with certain workflow processes that had never really been changed. And so I I just felt like there was an opportunity to, you know, if we were working in an environment where it felt better to um, be more honest and reflective as a group, then maybe we would have more of an opportunity to actually be our best selves and promote this more curious, more, um, more, uh, reflective and analytical. Uh, and I think that gets to the heart of something that I know did come up in the discussion, Ben, about um, what's the purpose of the debrief, whether it is related to people's sense-making, whether it is so-called bland quality improvement um, or whether it strays into some psychological first aid. Uh, I know you've had a big interest in this topic. Um I also just want to compliment you, Ben, and wonder if you had comments about the methods because it seems a nice pairing between this one very quantitative paper, over 50,000 debriefs looking at a quantitative outcome like mortality, and then doing that nice qualitative paper which really asked people in depth in depth about both successes and failures. Uh, but did you have any comments on the sort of methods before we got into the substance? Uh, no, only only beyond, I guess, appreciation of the the thoroughness of what they had done, um, and I do agree that that actually that mixed methods approach into separate papers actually gives you different types of really really useful data, which uh, I was certainly very grateful for reading through it. Did you have any thoughts, Laura? Well, I I feel like I learned a lot about the process from talking with Michael Rose that I didn't learn just from reading the paper. So I think it may be interesting to get into some of the details of what they did, because 
I think at the end of the day, it's not about, as you said earlier, it's not about the checklist. It's not about the debriefing. It's about a really kind of remarkable culture shift that happened and that was was um, really prioritized before they implemented this program. And then it was really about the way they used the information that was gained through these daily debriefings or, or um, case debriefings that let, led to the results that they got. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because uh, when I think of this paper now, I think of the whole discussion I've had, but the the reality is of my understanding of this project has actually been heavily informed by uh, the link you provided of uh, Jenny Rudolph's podcast uh, with Michael Rose and your explanation of some of the the detail in the process as well that wasn't necessarily easy to extract from the paper itself. When I first read this paper, I mean, one of the reasons why I shared it with you is because I thought I've got to be missing something. I mean, this is, this is too incredible. Um, And why aren't we screaming from the rooftops, you know, what they did and try to all mimic this, this project or this program, because it just seems like their results are so remarkable. And, um, and actually I think the results would be, truly unbelievable if it really were just about uh, a few minutes of debriefing after every surgical case. But but the fact is, it was so much more than that. And so maybe it would be helpful to kind of get into some of the details of what they did that I think led to these truly remarkable um, results that they and that are they're able to appreciate. Uh, ben, did you want to then give us a little bit of an outline, maybe of the discussion, because a lot of the topics I think we're going to cover come up then? Yeah, absolutely. So this was an interesting month in that it started very slow and then in the last uh, week or two snowballed into the most amazing discussion that included a number of world leaders in simulation and clinical event debriefing. And uh, thanks so much to everybody who contributed. I think the big three themes for me were that uh, the success of a clinical event debriefing program is dependent on what happens to the data that's extracted that the term debriefing was considered potentially misleading and could be counterproductive to quality improvement goals, and that the importance of marginal gains in quality improvement programs was really highlighted in the Western healthcare um, examples that we've given. I think when I talk about the first point, that the success of the debriefing program is dependent on what happens to the data, uh, that came up time and time again in the articles and the comments. And we recognize that the success of these programs was really in the sophisticated infrastructure that supported them. Uh, and I wonder whether that's why these, this paper hasn't been as uh, sexy or widely celebrated is that actually the solution was hard and complex. Um, by collecting the data and analyzing it for actionable change and then synthesizing and communicating that data back to the team, it sounds like a fundamental culture shift was possible. Uh, so Shannon McNamara, who came along this month, put it as inviting feedback in whatever form identifying performance gaps and acting on them is a recipe for success in simulation and in the clinical environment. But be warned, sustained energy, leadership and money will be required to ensure success. And the Rose and Rose paper provides an argument for all healthcare systems to invest likewise. Uh, Sonia Twig, Stuart Rose and you as well, Vic, voiced that concern regarding the term debriefing, what it means and how it can essentially be somewhat counterproductive branding in some ways for the kind of short quality improvement conversations that were demonstrated in this paper. So Stuart Rose stated, I wonder if we're creating a barrier to post-event discussion in the workplace if we call our conversation debriefing. 
Once we say debriefing, do staff think of a trained facilitator taking 45 minutes to explore the emotional, teamwork and process issues identified after the case? Have staff had a bad experience being debriefed? Debriefing clinical events is not the same as debriefing simulated events. And in fact, Stuart mentioned that he'd missed this paper originally in a previous literature review, uh, mainly because the papers de-emphasized debriefing per se within the article itself. Um, so it's not an insignificant branding issue and it's an interesting, complex problem. All right. Uh, thanks for that, Ben. So I think this is a pretty important topic and that is what's a debrief anyway because uh, – it can have multiple potential purposes, as we've discussed. Is it psychological first aid? Is it quality improvement? Is it learning? It doesn't have to be that these things are separate. Uh, but then also, as you rightly point out, there's a bit of a branding issue there, which is whatever it is, do people have the same understanding of it? Uh, so, Laurie, this sort of came up as you were talking about surgical uh, debriefings as well. But what do you think? Have we got a branding issue with the word or the concept of debrief? You know, I think there's such a large range of conversations that follow a shared experience that can all be considered a form of debriefing. And when I first started learning about this program um, that Michael Rose is leading, I was very confused because I just really didn't get what, whether what they were doing was really a debrief, because compared to what I had been considering a debrief, it seemed quite different. And I actually, during our early conversations, I'd asked him if I could come visit their hospital and come see what they were doing. And he said to me, observing a debrief is rather uninspiring. It is the cumulative effect of them and scaling it that has given us the results that we've achieved. So in their case, their debriefings are an average of two to three minutes. So I would, I would kind of um, argue that, you know, in the sense that we all think of as a, as a debriefing where we establish some psychologically, psychological safety and do some introductions and establish our goals for the conversation and, um, you know, sort of do a little bit more of a conversation that um, has a structure and a goal, in their case, it's really just simply a conversation that is a brief, efficient means of communicating things that people have noticed. And in their, in their program, what they're really trying to do is, is get people on the front lines to be able to communicate day-to-day -day findings so that people in leadership are able to understand what's happening to patients on a day-to-day -day basis reported by staff who know best. And it's a and it's very feasible because it's a very short conversation that fits into the flow of their regular work. Yeah, so this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And Ben, a lot of our readers I think then struggled with the same thing I do, which is that sounds pretty different to the kinds of interest in debriefs after things that happen in the emergency department which seem to me to have a different scope to that. And some of our uh, contributors uh, also mentioned this. What do you think? Yeah, uh, look, I think it's a very interesting and complex problem. We've certainly, we rolled out our clinical event debriefing program in our Kids ED recently. And one of the things that came up significantly was a number of staff in the training said, can we call this something else? Because this doesn't feel like a debrief to us and then everybody sort of workshopped ideas for words and none of them really fit there's a lot of functional 
it's quite a nice word debrief. It's short. Uh, it says a lot, but also maybe says too many things. Um, um, but it's an easy thing to say. So I think to me, the surgical nature of the debriefs that were able to be done in this article kind of predisposes the discussions in some ways to make it easier to have a fairly quick operational style focus in that there's a level of predictability in a planned surgical operation that is not necessarily predictable in an undifferentiated patient arriving in an unexpected way in an emergency department. And so I, I feel pretty strongly that actually in the next 10 years, we're going to involve evolve a a level of kind of adaptive expertise when it comes to clinical event debriefing in that I think we will have to acknowledge there are going to be different needs depending on the situation, the patient condition and the emotions involved. And I know that Laura has advocated uh, really effectively for this concept of emotion before cognition and I think that that will have to be to continue to be acknowledged even in these quality improvement focused conversations that depending on what type of patient comes through and what the staff need and what their response Responses. We're going to have to reflexively adapt the needs of that learning conversation at the end of a case, depending on what the staff and the department need at that time. Yes, and that involves some diagnostic skills as, as much as then the skill of facilitating that conversation. Uh Maybe before we come back to Laura's expert thoughts on this, um, other comments from our journal club discussants, Ben? Yeah, look, I think the third thing that was heavily highlighted was the importance of marginal gains. And I know that uh, I'm saying something that we both strongly believe in here, Vic, but there was really widespread appreciation that these changes and safety improvements took time to see. It was actually four years um, where they described a gradual improvement rather than a sudden overnight change because they'd rolled out clinical event debriefing. Uh, and importantly, I think to me, they highlight really in a sophisticated fashion that while there might have been some early, relatively easy wins, actually the longer the program goes on, the more marginal the gains are and the more complex the solutions have to be so that as the program continues, um, they need to spend more time solving some of those harder, more complex problems, which I think is an important point because it would be easy to start writing off the program after a while. Yes, this is uh, really gets to the point of what is the impact of these things and is it what you do or is it just the fact that you're doing it? Uh, so just to recap, so we're thinking about clinical debriefings. We're thinking about them in the context of this article, which is uh, a, a surgical operative uh, context, and we're suggesting that uh, significant improvements in clinical outcomes for patients can happen if we have short conversations after uh, these events, uh, and we also think about how to extrapolate that into contexts like the ICU, like the ED, and other places of care. All right, Laurie, you better tell us uh, what you think, and in particular, maybe what we should do as a result of this. I think that you know what they were really trying to do in this program is to combat unconscious normalization of errors. And they were really conscious of the, of the idea that morale suffers when staff are expected to deliver exceptional care in an environment that doesn't support them. So what they were trying to do was create a culture where even mentioning tiny things or workarounds that they've been doing every day for years um, is finally going to be uh, 
the awareness of that is finally going to um, spread to the people who actually have the power to make change. So they were doing 70, 70 to 100 debriefs a day during the, the study period, and it continues now. Now they've done um, almost 150,000 debriefs because they're still um, debriefing over 97% of their cases. And um, they felt, and I agree, that the keys to their success were both acknowledging what people said, which they, which they achieved through their transparency, and acting on the findings fast. And which they achieved by putting a tremendous amount of resources in money and people into trying to change the problems that were identified. So that's very useful uh, background, Laura. So having, for both of you, having really now understood a little bit about why this group was so successful, but also from the other people about why others aren't. Um, Give me a sense of what should we do now as a result? And I'm going to situate that in two ways. What should we do in our clinical world? Um, And I know ours are all slightly different, but then what should we do picking up on the sort of simulation debriefing connection here? Are there either skills or people that we should be utilizing in this transition of one to the other, or is that completely irrelevant? So three questions in there. Ben, I'm going to get you to start. Uh, Well, I think if I can, I'm going to throw all those together in one response, which would be how has this paper changed my response to our clinical event debriefing program at my hospital? Perfect. Um, And to me, I have heavily changed the amount of data transparency and I've worked a lot harder at synthesizing the conversations we've had and sending it back to the team. So I've sent uh, monthly reports to my director and um, the nursing lead as well on issues that have been identified that need either action or observation or just keeping in the background to just watch if it's a recurrent issue. This is from clinical um, clinical event debris. Correct. Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, made sure I've got a decent database of the events that have happened. Um, and also, so I've, I've spent a little bit of time making some infographics. So once uh, I get to about a month, I've tried to summarize the issues fairly succinctly, visually, and emailed it and displayed it in the department so that people are aware that these conversations are happening, but also specifically listing things that have changed in the department because of those conversations in a hope that I can in some ways stimulate that same uh, cultural shift in a smaller way. Just an excuse uh, for an infographic, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, it feels like that's all I'm doing. <laughs> but... Um, I think that trans- it really highlighted the importance of transparency and accountability of the conversations to me uh, and integrating that into the system and recognizing that that's where more of the work needs to be. Uh-huh. It's also changed how I've trained the staff who are doing it to emphasize that uh, goal of actionable outcome and uh, ensuring that the, the conversations dig deep enough that we find things that we can change. What I would say, as I mentioned in the the journal club is that one thing that I struggle with is that uh, sometimes I get a lot of sort of safety one style solutions to a specific problem that may end up making the department as a whole too complex and finding a way to balance out encouraging those responses and then uh, in some ways inheriting the responsibility for that change while trying to make sure that I don't end up with a whole bunch of uh fiddly solutions to single singular problems that end up impacting the department as a whole. 
Yeah, and I guess that comes down to the relationship between this and our established quality improvement processes and governance processes. Uh, Laura, can I ask you the same question? What has this done in terms of changing your practice or prompting new practices in your environment? Well, I I was really fortunate to be able to study this program before implementing a clinical debriefing program of my own. So um, I just finished a six-week pilot of a daily debrief in the intensive care unit where we debriefed every day for 10 minutes at four o'clock with everyone in the entire ICU, including the secretary and respiratory therapist and all of the nurses and attending resident fellow. Um, if the chaplain was there, they would join. So um, I, I did really try to borrow a lot from what this program did, including just as Ben did um, every week, I would publish the highlights of the previous week's debriefings and I tried to make them very transparent. Um, I would say at least half of the comments that people raised were praise. So it's really easy to be transparent when people are praising each other. But even when there were problems, I think um, it was really helpful for people to know details because they had often heard sort of grumbling about things, but it just made it easier to discuss when it was out in the open. Um, another thing I would say um, that I think is really important for us to learn and implement is something Ben said earlier about the timing. So I think one of the reasons why they were able to publish the results they did was that they had they studied it over 12 quarters. And most of the prior debriefing literature was in a much shorter time frame. So they didn't get these kinds of results. And it took three years for them to see a 33% reduction in 30-day mortality and all of these other, you know, um, results like the labor hours and the culture of safety changes. So I think just giving us the giving ourselves the time um, and just the awareness that we're not going to see um, really significant changes. It takes it takes a long time for people to get engaged to really adopt um, the process and feel comfortable mentioning observations that they have that are important. Um, and for and for us to learn from some of the patterns that we're seeing and identifying hotspots and, and trying to make changes, it takes time. So we have to, um, I mean, I think that those data can help us also as we, um, as we try to engage our own stakeholders and get support and for the time needed to make uh, successful change. Yes, that's interesting. So you don't debrief you're not talking about debriefing individual patients or events. You're talking about debriefing essentially a shift or a day. Is yeah, that right? um, I, 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 that's exactly right. It's not about the patients. I mean, sometimes patient issues come up, but it's really about us. So the debriefing starts with um, first introductions, which is really important because I've had people say to me, oh my God, I've been working next to that respiratory therapist for four years and her badge is always backwards. And I, it was so helpful to hear her name. <laughs> um, so I think uh, we start with a very quick round of introductions. And then it just is a, um, what, what went particularly well today? How was today? Um, and then we use your, um, you know, how could we be 1% better? And how could we imagine this working 1% better tomorrow? Um, and then sometimes there are more um, granular questions around, was there information that, that could have 
helped in this particular circumstance or how could we have made it 1% better for patients or family today if people aren't really talking, but that was really unnecessary. So usually um, it was a pretty easy conversation that people had important observations or, or praise or concerns that uh, were pretty easy for them to get into a conversation mm-hmm. about. Yep. And so you would do something quite different if, for instance, then you had a what I might call a critical incident or some kind of uh, very triggering event in a single patient in the ICU, you would have some sort of a separate process for that, say an unexpected uh, traumatic death of some sort. That's right. And we we do still have critical event debriefings in addition to this program. My goal in this program is partly that I think you can identify important workflow and relationship issues even in 10 minutes. And secondarily, I think when you get people looking at each other face-to-face, using each other's first names, having a face-to-face conversation for a few minutes every day, it changes the other 23 hours and 50 minutes of communication. And I do think even in six weeks, I noticed people using first names more, people more willing to approach each other with questions and clarification and ideas. I mean, six weeks is so incredibly short that it's it's hard to make that argument. But I, I think that even, even in that short time frame, I saw a change in the kind of relationships that people were having. Yeah, so it's there's a lot of the benefit is in the what some people might call value signaling or hidden curriculum or whatever, not just what is said. Uh, ben, this is all very interesting. Uh, did you want to give any other sort of final comments on the paper or any other thoughts about where to from here? I would just want to echo that uh, as with Laura, we were able to see effects in our the culture of our department quite quickly uh one thing that we noticed is that the tea room conversations had simmered down somewhat in terms of things that were previously being debriefed in corridors or discussed were now um because they were having a facilitated and more structured discussion the uh the leak that happens to address that unresolved need uh has been improving and and certainly staff have been requesting more conversations um in more structured methods which has been great i think to me take homes here from these papers were really that this is this is complex you can achieve great things but it needs strong infrastructure determination and uh high level executive administrative and staff buy-in to achieve it you're listening to Simulcast. The extra paper this month, we've just chosen one because we knew we'd have a long discussion about the clinical debriefing. Uh, this paper is entitled Learning After the Simulation is Over, the Role of Simulation in Supporting Ongoing Self-Regulated Learning in Practice. And this is by Sharif and colleagues, just published uh, online ahead of print in Academic Medicine, so a very high-ranking journal. And the group is from the University of British uh, Columbia, in Vancouver, who are well known to have very high quality uh, medical education, health education scholarship work. And uh, Rose Hatala is in that group that many people in simulation might know. So uh, very interesting. And, and the overview for this paper is uh, there's lots we can learn from Sim about improving our performance, but maybe the real untapped potential is in helping us for a much more long-term approach to learning. 
which I think does pick up on what we've been saying in that there's so much in what we do in SIM that can potentiate what we can learn from practice. And I know, Ben, for you, the fascinating with this would have been the deep dive into self-regulated learning theory. So we might start out with that. Um, so what is self-regulated learning? And if we're going to think about whether SIM can help with this, and they really sort of start this with the abstract saying that the way we learn in the clinical environment means that health professionals have to, and I'm going to quote here, assess their own performance, manage their learning, and modify their practices based on self-monitored progress. Uh, there's a little bit of deeper, longer words uh, offered further on down the paper saying that this involves uh, goal setting and then planning, monitoring and learning strategies, motivation and emotion control, and then finally an abil ability to evaluate ourselves and how we're going with that. So I guess the to give an example, we might think, well, we need to get better at airway management, so we need to set certain goals maybe related to the technical teamwork, behavioural aspects of that. We might lead to think about what are the ways we're going to acquire each of those skills, and then we need to think about how we're going to assess ourselves against the ultimate goal of being good at this. So, Ben, can I just uh, ask you to jump in here? What did you think about self-regulated learning? Was it a concept you'd come across explicitly? Uh, not in those terms, and I really, I mean, I, I think we, I remember Jesse talking about uh, the difference between the, the self-motivated learner and the motivated self-learner, um, but I, it really certainly struck a chord with me. I think um, in many ways, uh, Simulcast Journal Club is an example of uh, trying, to, trying to stimulate people to uh, have some self-regulated learning as well, but uh I think it's so important and I, I heavily agree with the article that we've under-emphasized it. Yeah, so this is a sort of uh, commentary and concepts article and the authors don't pretend it's based on any empiric work, but I think it is based on a pretty deep understanding from this group about some of the ways that SIM positions itself as a learning tool at the moment. And <clears throat> their contention really is that a lot of the emphasis at the moment is that what we do in the sim immediately impacts on performance. And a lot of the work that's been done in looking at the models of simulation training have basically looked at maximising that and preventing the performance decay that we know happens after you do some kind of simulation. So let's just say, and they give some examples that are well known in the simulation literature from uh, the Northwestern group, BASIC, and their work on uh, central lines and lumbar punctures, as well as Martin Pusick uh, looking at his work and, you know, trying to think, well, sure, you get this good at doing your central line in simulation training, then we try and give you boosters over time to improve. But instead, this group says, well, there's actually a difference between performance and learning which was a distinction I hadn't really appreciated. And maybe Sim, instead of just saying, well, what are you going to change and uh, what are you going to do from here, says, well, what's your more detailed learning strategy from here? How have you now identified the needs you've got and how are you going to monitor yourself? And I'm going to read out these definitions and do it slowly because it's worth thinking about. So they say performance is defined as observable, measurable demonstrations of knowledge and behaviour which may fluctuate throughout training. Learning, by contrast, is defined as more permanent changes in understanding and skill, which are crucial for long-term application and knowledge transfer. There's one, one quote that I really enjoyed that sort of synthesised the paper well to me, which was it said, at present, 
debriefing models ask what participants have learned from the simulation and what they'll do differently, which is their practice goals, but not how they will evaluate their own performances while trying to work on these practice goals and how they will create future learning plans based on the results of their implementation efforts. And I think that synthesized the big problem that we sometimes have with debriefing at the moment to me. I I love that because it's taking this one extremely resource intensive, hard to get learners into it experience and allowing them to extrapolate and make that a useful um, sort of jumping off point for future experiences, even if they aren't going to be in simulation. Yes, for sure. And I think that just goes with certainly mine and I suspect lots of others' biases that we perhaps overestimate what we've achieved through the simulation in the moment and perhaps underestimate what we can achieve through the uh, enabling of habits and thinking about the translation in terms of a learning impact, not just a performance one. I I also think that it allows you to connect. I mean, it sort of connects with the previous paper because it Um, I think the theme is a learning mindset, whether it's through this um, different model of thinking about how a learner can take what they've done in simulation and and use it more broadly, um, as well as in this um, surgical-based debriefing program where they've really just tried to create a culture of what don't I know, what can I learn, how do I use what I've done here, and Um, change my practice in the future. Yes, and there's subtle differences, but I think they are important ones. And we discussed this with our uh, education faculty group. And very interestingly, someone who's been an education fellow was saying, you know, we go to all this trouble to make up these simulation cases. I was working on the weekend. I just don't know why we can have all these conversations about the real cases. And I think that was the insights you get when you've been doing a lot of education work and thinking about that reflective practice and you can take what you've done as a process to help learners in SIM and think, well, actually, we can do a lot more of that in the real world. So I guess the question for us is, what do we do now? And again, the authors are very modest um, and not trying to overreach because they say, look, this is just conceptual, it's just our opinion, we haven't got a great idea about what that should look like in terms of a form of words or in terms of the way people should change their simulations. Uh, So they're not saying they've got the manifesto of all the answers, but I think it's food for thought. Uh, What else did you think, Ben? Look, I really loved it. I think um, a couple of things I want to highlight from my perspective is, and I know I've learned this from you, but the concept of actively doing an audit is in itself a improvement exercise. And I think in some ways this paper is arguing if we can teach our learners to learn better and in some ways audit themselves, they'll they'll give themselves their own Hawthorne effect and uh, stimulate continual practice improvement. And I think moving people to a place of active self-reflection in their continual practice as opposed to in facilitated sessions is really challenging but really, really important. I think I did want to counterpoint the uh, what's the point of having simulation if we can have clinical event learning. Um, And I think that's true, but I think what Sim adds is um, structure and curriculum and opportunities to learn from uh, events that you might not experience in real life as well. 
but certainly this paper has, again, um, reinforced to me the importance of thinking about not just the educational exercise, but how do I reinforce it after the people have gone? How do I continue to stimulate their learning? And how do I continue to advocate and empower them to become active uh, self-regulated learners as opposed to uh, passive simulation participants who might have gained something from the individual experience. Yes, I think what it makes me think is trying to do something a little bit more than tell me one thing you're going to take away from today because we probably need to we've, – we've probably got more opportunity than just that. You know, how has this changed your performance and maybe to send some of those more explicit signals yeah, can I mention, so we, we've written a new course and in it, at the end of the course we hand out some postcards and the learners write whatever they want to remind themselves or stimulate themselves to do on the postcard and then we send it a month after. But what uh, one of our Simcoe's, uh, Stefan, came up with is actually in addition to that, we're gluing a, um, a sticker of a QR code which links them to further resources and additional reading so that not only are they reminded of the things we don't want them to forget but we're trying to nurture them towards uh, further data that they can keep improving their practice on which i thought was a quite clever idea from them excellent you're listening to simulcast uh all right well what we might do ben finish up that discussion there now and maybe you can tell us about the general club that we've already got online at the moment yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this, uh, the last journal club of 2019 is up now uh, at uh, simulationpodcast.com. We are discussing observer roles and learning in simulation. And we're looking at a paper by uh, Delisle et al. Uh, published uh, pretty hot off the press in Simulation in Healthcare 2019, entitled Comparing the Learning Effectiveness of Healthcare Simulation in the Observer versus Active Role. And it's a meta-analysis uh, that uh, draws out some useful specific data about how we can best incorporate observer learning into simulation practice. Uh, and I think much overdue when many of us are trying to think about what's the size of groups and who gets what out of the experience. So look forward to that discussion, Ben. And I will also put up to that the um, the systematic review that uh, Stephanie O'Regan and her colleagues did in, from Advances in Simulation, which I think looks at the same question in slightly different ways. So we look forward to that discussion. Um, Agreed. They actually quote her quite heavily in the meta-analysis, which I was thrilled excellent. about. All right. Well, I guess that's us signing off for another uh, Simulcast Journal Club. It's been great to have Laura along. Great to have you, Ben. And uh, we look forward to a discussion, which will probably be just before Christmas as a final little listening uh, treat for our Simulcast listeners. What more could you ask ask for? for? All right. (laughs) Victoria Brazel and Ben Simon and Laura Rock signing off for Simulcast. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.